Y'all may be seated. Thank you, Anderson. Thank you, Corey. Thank you, Andy. Man, love that song. Stand in awe of you. I used to sing that song riding a mower in high school in the summers. And if I stood up, although I wanted to, it'd kill my mower. So I had to sing it sitting down. But it was a good deal. Y'all grab your Bibles. Let's go to Romans chapter 12. We're going to be there here in just a minute. But first, I want to tell you a story about an old preacher. This old preacher was well into his 90s, and he knew that his time here on earth was short. And so he wanted some special things to happen in his last few days. So he called over a couple of uh, members of his church, two guys. One was a banker, and one was a lawyer. He called them over to the house, and as they arrived at the house, they went back to his bedroom where he was laying on his bed, and he motioned for them silently to come and sit, one on one side of the bed and one on the other. They both sat down, and he reached out, and he grabbed their hands. And then without saying a word, he just sighed contentedly and was looking at the ceiling. Not a word was said, and this went on and on until it got a little bit awkward. It got awkward because, you know, we don't like silence, but it also got awkward because the banker and the lawyer, while they attended this man's church and heard him preach many sermons, were never really close to him. To be honest, they really didn't think he was that great of a preacher. And to be honest, on his side, he really didn't think much of them. So it was weird that they were asked to be with him in his final moments. So this silence went on and on, and finally one of them decided, I've got to say something. So he asked, the preacher, why did you call us here? The old man mustered as much strength as he could as he held the man's hands, and he breathed deep, and he said, I've followed Jesus most of my life, and so I want to die as Jesus died, between two thieves. Now, we're going to say it again over and over in this series out of Romans 12, the last third of the book, this section of Scripture in which Paul speaks very clearly about what it looks like to follow Jesus every day as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing. We're going to say this, that church community, church family is not easy. It takes time, it takes prayer, it takes deep commitment, it takes that even if attitude that Andy was just talking about. I think it takes this because we all have this utopian inclination in our minds. We read passages like Acts 2, 42 through 47, and we idealize that. And we say, look, the church should all look like this. And that's true. There's some truth to that. We should read that and say, wow, that's what church can be. But then we forget that there's so much more to the story. Keep reading, right? Those who idealize Acts 2, the best thing is to go, we'll keep reading because most of the New Testament after that is written to churches in crisis, churches who are struggling, churches who are trying to exist and unify even with all their problems and weaknesses. Loving each other and living in community as a church is difficult. When that person across you at the next fellowship feast talks with their mouth open, or that person down the row from you next service keeps popping their gum or messing with that peppermint, whatever it is, or on deeper levels that sometimes can feel really deep when we disagree about doctrine and teaching 
and interpretation. It gets hard. But church family, I want you to know this because this is what Romans is based upon. Romans is written to two groups of people that Paul is trying to say come together. And unity is never a church service issue. I want you to hear that. Unity is a discipleship issue. It always has been. God is not looking for a homogenous family. He is looking for a a diverse family who has unity out of the result of transformation by the Holy Spirit because they are living together as the body of Christ. And when the people who do that, who make up the body of Christ and are transformed by the renewing of their minds, by the power of the Holy Spirit, that result is unity. They live altered, living sacrifices, holy and pleasing, picking up that language of Old Testament sacrifice, an aroma that is holy and pleasing, not conformed to the world, but transformed by Jesus. Today, we're going to look at verses 3 through 8 of chapter 12. It's a step further, a surprising step. Because after Paul says, hey, I want you to be transformed and live a daily sacrifice and not be conformed to the world, his first piece of teaching isn't about what you do by yourself. His first advice, his first commands are what we do together, about how we treat each other. We're going to call this today the command or the call of church community. I want to pray over this. and May God bless us as we study his word. Let's pray. God, may you draw us today to you. May we see your love and your grace first before we see the thing that we don't like about somebody else. And then may we look, after we've looked at you and we've looked at the cross, may we look to our right and left and notice that the blood that has covered us is covering our brothers and sisters too. And Father, may we be unified. Not because we somehow assent to all the same things, but because we all worship you. And because we have laid it down at the altar and are living daily sacrifices. Teach us today, Lord. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. So quick poll. You can raise your hand if you'd like to. I'd like to see. But I think I I know the answer, right? Quick poll is this. How many in here would like just a little more contentment, joy, or happiness in your life? Okay. Those of you that didn't raise your hand are like, well, it sounds like a trick question. Right? Or some of you are like, well, I just like being grumpy. Yeah. Your family doesn't. Cut it out. Right? We would all love a little bit more joy. It's innate in us, right? So thousands of studies have been done on happiness and joy and contentment. All those have probably brought unique um, sort of uh, angles on that and what that looks like for us to be content. But all the studies that have been done by psychiatrists or sociologists or, or social scientists, all of them basically whittle down happiness to four This is really interesting, that if you want to be happy, the things that we've got to do are pretty simple. Number one, 
Happy people have close friendships. It's somewhere between two to four people that you have in your life. People that you know well enough to love. They know well, you well enough to love you back. They can share life with you. A word for this probably is two to four confidants. The second thing that all these happiness studies reveal is people that have family. And this, is pro- this isn't politically correct anymore for some crazy reason. But people that have mom, dad, brother, sister, a family. People that are close to them, they're happier. Number three is meaningful work. This one's interesting because happiness doesn't come from the amount of money you make or the type of job you have, nor the hours that you work. What makes people happy is that they find their work meaningful, that there's reason and passion behind it. That seems to help people with happiness. And then the final one, which is really not popular in our world today, is people are happy when they have something, kind of framework, or foundation their life that helps them make sense of death and life and big questions. Another word for framework of life is faith. And so these four things are what makes people happy. And I would bet if we all, all those of us that raised their hands and said they want to be happy, probably you want all four of these things as well. But here's the problem. The problem is you are living in a world right now, in a culture right now, that is hollowing out all four of those. All four of them. And the main tool that our world is using, whether we know it or not, and we're a part of it, and we use it ourselves, the one thing that is prominent that is hollowing out all four of those is our problem with individualism. Individualism, if you don't know what it is, is a big problem in the church. Individualism defined is a moral stance or philosophy that favors the actions of one over the actions of the many. And our world is dripping with it. We have this idea of being our own person, rugged and free, the lone wolf, the John Wayne character, and it is hard cast into America. It is part of the American experience. But individualism, if left unchecked, leads to not only internal but external conflicts in the church. And we're going to see why out of Scripture here in just a moment. But before we get to Scripture, I want to give you three examples out of our culture where individualism is hollowing out some of the innate things in us that bring purpose and happiness. First one's this. A guy named Robert Putnam 20 years ago wrote a book called Bowling Alone. And he started to study this idea that Americans have less and less friendships and now they're even going bowling alone, right? Which sounds awful because bowling's not fun by yourself, right? Who wants to go, other than Barry, who wants to go bowling by themselves, right? Nobody's really good at it other than Barry. And If you go by yourself, it's not very fun, right? So he wrote this thing, and here's what he found out. In 1985, some of you weren't even alive then, so you can't even imagine this, but 1985, the average adult American had at least three friends that they considered confidants, three close friends. I would love to have three close male friends that I would consider confidants. I probably have that. There's been times in my life I didn't. 
You know what the average is in America in 2021 or 2022, a couple years ago? It's less than one now. It's 0.85. The average American now has less than one friend that they consider a confidant. That's the power of individualism. We live in this world that tells us you are your own person. You don't need anybody else. Simon and Garfunkel sang about it. I am a rock. I am an island, right? Second guy I want to talk about. This guy named Alexander. Alexander, after coming over to the United States and studying it, as a social scientist, said this about the Western world. He said, radical individualism is the defining American trait. And if left unchecked, it will mean the abolition of mankind. Now, what he meant by that is he's saying that individualism has the power to burn it all down. (laughs) And he wrote this in the year 1831. Those are two powerful examples. But my favorite example of how individualistic that we have gotten as a country and as a people comes from the great philosopher Jim Gaffigan. (laughs) He explains this obsession with self in a comedy bit he did 10 years ago, and I'm going to show it to you because it is genius the way he wrote it. He's talking about going to the gym, and as he talks about going to the gym, he talks about our obsession with self. Here's just a 53-second clip. I check the mirrors, you know. I don't want to see myself working out. I know what I look like. That's why I'm going to the gym. <laughs> Obviously, there's some people that do want that, right? Like, if I'm going to be working out, I want to look something like myself. <laughs> I want to look at myself while I work on myself. I should do the point so I can listen to myself when I look at myself when I work on myself. <laughs> bit, but he couldn't be more correct about how individualistic we've become, right? And I'm here to show you in those three examples, we could spend a lot of time on this, but here's why I'm bringing this up, is that radical individualism in the church leads to church tribalism, which leads to church sectarianism, which always will lead to church splits. And this is what Paul is addressing in Romans 12. When he writes to the letters or to the churches in Rome with this one letter, these churches are dividing over tradition, over individual preferences, over ideas. And instead of coming together to work them out, they're dividing along lines of tribes. And what he's going to say as a solution is to be altered, to be that living sacrifice. And spoiler alert, where we're going today, starting in verse 3 of chapter 12, he's going to say, you want a church family? You want to be content and joyful? It's found in the body of Christ. One of the solutions to our unhappy world is found in living in Christ. I would contend this, church family, that what individualism does 
the loneliness we feel because of the world we live in, those things that our world does to erode our joy, I believe the family of Jesus does to restore it when the family of Jesus is lived out according to Scripture. So here's what he kicks off with. Romans 12, 3. We're going to take this just section by section. It divides up perfectly into a three-point sermon, so that's what we're going to do. And here's what he begins with, with verse 3. He says, For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgments in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. So after he said, be living sacrifices, now he's going to go, I want to show you what it looks like. And it starts with this. If we're going to be transformed worshipers and we're going to live this altered way of life, then we've got to live in community. There is three calls of community in this section we're going to look at. And the first call of community is this. In the call of community, in church family, privilege cards not accepted. That's what he says here in verse 3. You have man cards, trading cards, debit and credit cards, gift cards, playing cards, Uno cards, and more. We overuse some cards where it gets us in trouble. We underutilize others like gift cards and forget we have them. Some cards we lose, like my man card, which I lost watching Downton Abbey years ago with my wife. (laughs) Right? but I'm man enough to admit it. Some of you aren't, right? (laughs) But one card, Paul says, that should never be played in the body of Christ is the privilege card, the pride position. So Paul reminds us in humility that by the grace of God, humility is a prerequisite to community. How we think about ourselves And the privileges we have in the body of Christ directly influences how we think about those other members of the body of Christ. So Paul goes, you don't think of yourself that way. You think of yourself with sober judgment, which is, in the Greek, would really read, don't act like a drunk man. When you are prideful, you're acting like you are intoxicated because you have forgotten where you come from. And when we really meditate on this call, this command to not play the privilege card, it doesn't take long for us to see this great wisdom at work. There's a couple things I experienced this past week as I looked at verse 3. One was I play the privilege card way too much. Well, I, I should know better. I've, I've got a master's in Bible. That's a privilege card. Or I've been working hard for this church. That's a privilege card. And Paul goes, that's not how you think of it. You think of others higher than yourself. So if you're doing that, you can't ever play the privilege cards because the privilege card doesn't think of others it all as higher. We think of others as lower. But the deep work that Paul is doing is he knows as well as we do that when pride is played or privilege is play, prayed, played in a church, then pride always corrodes. It always destroys And when we play the privilege card, it sounds nice, but the irony is it does the opposite of what we want. So what's the privilege card sound like? I'll give you a few examples that are kind of 
on the nose. <laughs> How do you know these are on the nose? Because I've probably used them. Sounds like these attitudes. Well, this is my church. I've been a member here my whole life. Well, that's the way we've always done it. I think I know better than you because I studied the Bible more than you. Those are all privilege card positions. And what's funny is later on in Scripture, in an earlier, actually earlier on for Paul, it's an earlier writing, there's this ironic position. In Galatians 5.15, talking about privilege, Paul says this. He says, if you bite and devour each other, watch out or you'll be destroyed by each other. What's he doing is Paul is literally warning us to check our pride and privilege because if we don't, we will literally eat ourselves. You end up destroying the very thing you're trying to preserve. You see that? When we argue and fight and bite each other, we destroy the thing you're trying to preserve. So may we turn in our privilege cards. Check them back home. Check them, burn them, shred them. And remember how Paul starts verse 3 of Romans 12. For by grace given. No one today passed a test to get into the kingdom of God. Nobody here today climbed the ladder higher than somebody else and earned a spot on the varsity Jesus team. Not one of us gathered enough spiritual resources and personal righteousness where God came to us and said, man, you're the first one my son didn't have to die for. We're all here by grace. And when we live by grace, then we can say, I honor you above myself. Paul continues in verse 4 in this section. He says, For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not have all the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. You talk about a radical and countercultural idea to Western thinkers. That's us. That we belong to each other. I don't know if I could preach enough sermons on this. We believe we really don't, right? But I don't believe here Paul is speaking a metaphor or hyperbole. Here's what Paul believes that we often struggle to believe, and myself included. Paul knows and believes that the church is the real and lasting presence of Jesus on earth. You hear that? And because we are the actual, breathing, living, hands and feet of Jesus, he's going to say to us, you belong to each other, so don't destroy what you are. So the second call to community I'm going to borrow from a guy named Henry Nowen. Nowen said this years ago in talking about church family, he said the great command of church family is this, is the church has to learn to forgive each other for not being God. Ooh. You got to kind of sit with that for just a second. In other words, what he's saying is in church, we've got to learn to forgive each other because no one will ever live up to your expectations. You know why the church will never live up to your expectations? Because they are not God. (laughs) 
Your brothers and sisters down the row in front of you, behind you, wherever you sit, wherever you don't sit because you don't want to sit next to that other brother and sister, they are not God. They will not live up to the expectations you've put on them. And how do I know that? Because you don't even live up to the expectations you've put on yourself. Amen? (laughs) That's what Nowen was getting into. So since we can't live up to each other's expectations, there's this wonderful spiritual practice of saying, I'm going to forgive my brothers and sisters because they are not God. What a powerful statement. But that wasn't all he said. Here's what he said. The rest of the sentence is this. It's so good. He says, when you can learn to forgive others for not being God, then the church learns to celebrate The fact that they are a reflection of God. Oh man. When we can learn to forgive each other for not being God, then I can see in you, you bear the image of God. And that's the second call of community. That we're acting out of grace, forgiving each other. Because we have been forgiven. This passage, this section finishes with these three verses. He's going to get into giftedness, which our kids did with Corbin and Cameron and Calvin this morning. It says we have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us, right? According to what? We have gifts according to grace. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it's serving, then serve. If it's teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it's to lead, do it diligently. If it's to show mercy, do it cheerfully. But I want you to notice there again, the, the emphasis here, he lists seven gifts, but the emphasis isn't on the gifts. This isn't an exhaustive list. How do we know it's not exhaustive? Because he lists other gifts in other places, Paul does, in other books and other letters. But here, what he does again, the emphasis here is because of grace. Because of grace, we don't play privilege cards. Because of grace, we forgive each other. And because of grace... We use our gifts. So this third and final command or call to be church community is this, is gifts are something that the church practices they don't possess. Now let me say a word on this, and I'm going to mess some of you up here, okay? Because I'm about to say something where you're going to go, well, that's not what I've been taught my whole life. But hang with me, because, well... Just hang with me. So I'm going to do this real quick. And if we need to have, I don't have elders meeting this afternoon. So if you want to meet me this afternoon, we can talk about this. Okay. We often want to claim that grace comes with no strings attached. That it's just given. Well, I have grace and therefore I can do what I want. That's an American Western idea of the gospel. But here's what we miss out on. Grace, in an Eastern worldview, which is where the Bible is written, and in an ancient Near East worldview, which is where Jesus comes from and Paul comes from, grace is free, but it is not free of response. So we might say it's without strings, yes, but it is not without response. Here's what I mean. It helps to think about grace this way. In the Greek, the word for grace is charis. 
We name girls now Karis, uh, Carissa, same name, meaning grace. The word for gift in Greek is charisma. It's the same word. It's the same idea. In other words, what Paul is saying is because of the grace you have, now use the grace you've been given. You with me? It's grace and it's a gift. Gift is a grace. Grace is a gift. <laughs> you with me? In other words, in an honor and shame culture of the Eastern, Middle East, if somebody honored you with a gift, a great gift, and it came by grace, the worst thing you could do with it is not use it. You would dishonor the giver if you didn't use it. So grace is free. You cannot earn it. But God fully expects us to respond to it. Does that make sense? So, what's that look like? Well, here Paul says, you use your gift in accordance to the grace you've given. In other words, you don't own the gift and you get to do what you want with it. It was received by grace, so you use it according to the one who gave it to you. So you practice it. In other words, there's not such thing as a spiritual gift of pew-sitting in the church. Right? There's a little boy that I read about. There's an 11-year-old little boy named Jude Kofi. His parents immigrated to Colorado a few years ago from Ghana, West Africa. Jude is 11 years old. He's on the spectrum of autism. And about a year and a half ago, Jude uh, was down in the basement, and his dad, Isaiah, heard this noise coming from the basement. It was this beautiful piano music. And he thought, that is so strange, because no one in the Kofi household knew how to play the piano. They had this little electric keyboard. And he thought, what is going on down there? So he went downstairs, and there was his youngest son, Jude, this little, at the time, nine-and-a-half-year-old boy, who was playing the piano. Never had a lesson. Never a teacher. Never, had thir- never even had a piano really sit in front of him ever in his life. No one ever trained him to do it. But he somehow knew how to play music. Here's a little picture of him. So his dad said, well, there's something here. So he got him a bigger keyboard, and then it just started taking off. This kid could just play and play and play. Local news station out of Denver, Aurora, picked up on it, showed his uh, photo and did a little story on him on local news. This neighbor down the street named Bill heard the story, was watching the news one night, heard about Jude and thought, man, that is incredible. Bill had had a love for piano music his whole life. He had been a piano tuner in Denver for 40 years. He had just recently retired. He had been a lifelong person who loved and enjoyed music. And he was so taken by this kid that this man, Bill, decided, I'm going to do something about it. And he had just received an inheritance when his father passed away. So he bought the young boy a $15,000 grand piano. And this kid is now playing it, all without a lesson ever. And if you ask Jude and say, where does that come from? 
Jude says it's a miracle. It comes straight from God. And Bill, his neighbor down the street, says this. He says, well, where does it, when the news station asked Bill, where did it come from? Bill said, from beyond. That's the only explanation I have. From beyond. Meaning, this was a gift from God. And when Bill saw that gift in this young boy, Bill thought, I got to do something to make the gift be used. It's a grace. It's got to be used. That's what Paul's getting at. Is that when we have a gift of church family, it's a gift. It's here by grace. And when we see it for what it is, then we get to use it, practice it, love it, use our gifts and our talents as as something to glorify God and to encourage others. And that's Paul's point. And that's what we're going to close with today. Just an invitation to get back to that. I'll say again, church family's tough. I get it. Man, I am as guilty of playing the privilege card as anybody in here. I'm the chief of privilege cards, I'm sure. I like to win, so therefore I like to pull that card out. The competition has no place in the kingdom of God. Nor does pride. Nor do statements of tribalism and us trying to get our way. The place for the kingdom of God is for us to look at each other and say, I love you. If we disagree, let's love each other enough to work it out. And let's see the giftedness in each other. And let's get to work serving God. If you need anything today, we're here for you. Our baptistry's full. It's drained a little bit from this morning. I must have leaked for a moment. But it's still full enough to baptize anybody. If anybody's ready to come to Christ. If you're ready to put him on and say, I'm all in, that's what baptism is. It's a moment of saying, I'm in. I'm going all in with Jesus. And you'll receive that gift of the Holy Spirit and his grace in your life. Let's stand together and sing. There's a fountain free.